Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. Well, the book of Malachi, not Malachi, Malachi. It's tricky how it's spelled. And as we open up this book, four chapters long, the epilogue to the Old Testament. This is uh, the last prophet in Israel's history until their final prophet, John the Baptist, will come on the scene uh, 400 years later, preparing the way for Jesus. Um, The scriptures say that the prophets prophesied until John. So John the Baptist is our last Old Testament prophet. Uh, Not a lot of people realize that, but the Old Testament, I guess, canonically ends after Malachi, but the covenant continues until Jesus sheds his blood on the cross. And so John the Baptist is an Old Testament, Old Covenant prophet. But before him, you have the curtain closing to the Old Testament with this really remarkable prophet, Malachi. I have, um, I have encountered tons of verses from the book of Malachi just over the years of studying the Bible. Never have I done an in-depth study through this book and I wish I had sooner. Um, so let, let's get into this. We start every week with our prophet profile. Hopefully you can see the image up there. Um, the prophet profile gives us just a general overview of what's going on in the book of Malachi. Here are like the specs of this book. First you have the title, Malachi. His name means my messenger. Simply that. Uh, which is just so appropriate to just line him up with all the other prophets that God has used. Uh, they've just been those that have spoken on behalf of of God, God's messengers. Um, Prophets were radically dedicated to the message that God wanted to be spoken to his people. Um, It takes great conviction, by the way, to be a messenger of God, especially when the message is hard to hear. It confronts the sinfulness of our hearts. It says things to us like, hey, you got to change direction. You got to turn around. You know what I mean? Messengers. yeah, the church, the kingdom needs more like Malachi's, more messengers. It seems today like we have more editors than we have messengers, right? Like, oh, let's edit that, God. That's a little, let's, let's fix that. I'm, I'm your personal editor, God. I got, no. And so the prophets, we saw this great um, just example of what it means to just boldly speak the greatest thing that humans can hear, the truth of God, uh, which does confront our sin, but it also describes his love. Now, when and where is, is Malachi... Um, preaching and when's his ministry taking place it's in post-exile israel that's where it is post-exile israel remember all nine of the first minor prophets are pre-exile so this is god speaking to his people israel and a bunch of other people as well but mostly it's god speaking to his people calling out their covenant unfaithfulness their idolatry their hypocrisy the injustice the immorality i mean it's like the same story every book right like this is where you're at this is the covenant the agreement we had i was going to be your god you're going to be my people remember that whole thing the base of the mountain moses you know and this is where things headed they would just constantly veer off and god promised that judgment would come to the nation um, that they would reap what they're sowing. And um, the good news was always that God's grace was there to undergird it. He was always there to say, I'm here for you still. If you return to me, I'm going to return to you. But eventually, the judgment that God promised, it was fulfilled. 
And history uh, tells us that exactly as God said it would happen, it happened. The Babylonian Empire taking captive, exiling the southern kingdom of Judah. You can read about the details of this in the book of Daniel. And they are in exile for 70 years. Israel is captive to the Babylonian Empire. They're, they're slaves, those that survived. Uh, everything about Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple's destroyed. The walls are destroyed. It's just it's a pile of rubble. And, and just as Jeremiah the prophet promised, after 70 years, that's exactly what God said, that they would be captive for 70 years. After 70 years, God began to lead them back to their nation. If you read the book of Ezra, you see King Cyrus, this pagan king, has his heart stirred. God can use whoever he wants to do whatever he wants. He stirs the heart of the unlikely leader that nobody voted for, essentially. That's what you got to think about. This wicked leader, God says, I'm going to use him. I'm going to stir his heart, and he's going to, with his authority, he's going to send the Jews back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the temple. And that happens. Uh, that happens after 70 years of captivity. They, they start to go back, and this first big Zionist movement back to Israel, you have 50,000 Jews migrating back to Israel, and you have some key leaders there, Zerubbabel, who's the governor. He leads the reconstruction project, and Joshua, the high priest. Um, and it's, it's at that time that you have Haggai and Zechariah. Those are the, the first two post-exilic prophets. Um, and then you end up here where we are with Malachi. Now, Malachi takes place 430-ish B.C., around that time, 100 or so years. Notice how it's not pinpoint accurate. It's, it's pretty, I would say it's a pretty accurate guess, okay? 100 or so years after that initial Jewish return. That's when Malachi comes on the scene. He's like in a timepiece of his own. Israel comes back to Judah. Zechariah and Haggai, they're there. They're dueling prophets, doing ministry together, tag team homies, killing it. A hundred years later, a hundred years later, you have the last book of the Bible, the last prophet, um, after that initial return. Uh, many people speculate that it was either around, Malachi's ministry was either around or just immediately following the days of Nehemiah. This is all very important information, I promise you. Tr keep tracking with me here for this little history lesson. It'll get more um, heart level in a second, all right? Um, it's, it's either around or just after the days of Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah? He was the one that God called to rebuild the what? The walls of Jerusalem. First, God calls Ezra and Zerubbabel to, to lead the reconstruction of the temple. The first thing God wanted rebuilt wasn't the schools, it wasn't the homes, it wasn't the wall, it was worship, right? It was the temple, priorities. Now, after the reconstruction of the temple, you have you have. Zerubbabel building the temple. You have a guy named Ezra who's like a spiritual leader, and he wants to rebuild the spiritual life of the people. And then after them comes a guy named Nehemiah, who God gives this great burden to rebuild the security walls of Israel. The book of Nehemiah is a phenomenal book about how God leads a leader to accomplish great things and lead people to do great things. Now, at this time with Nehemiah, Things are looking as good as they ever have, really, in a long time. Like, it's a good time to be living in Israel. It's a good time to be a Jew. You're second generation now. Your parents, you hear stories, man, they were in captivity. But you're born now in Israel. And, and all that was destroyed has actually been rebuilt. The walls rebuilt. A hundred years later, at Malachi's time, 
you have, you have the, the temple, worship is restored. I mean, things are good. Like, we're talking about a complete transformation. A, you think about, like, a neighborhood. There's, there's a lot of neighborhoods like this in New York City that if you were to go back 30 years, the, the, the condition that it was in, you wouldn't even believe it's the same city as it is now, you know, and all the hipsters move in after that happens, too, which is the gentrification problem. Anyway, we're talking about gentrification at church this morning, all right? But, you know, you get this, you get this, this picture of, like, what looked hopeless. Now with this next generation, man, think it's a good time to be a Jew in Israel. But unfortunately, the book of Malachi exists for a reason. Notice Malachi's task. Malachi's task in that time when the walls were rebuilt, temple worships restored, his task was to close the curtain on the Old Testament scripture with a final word to God's once again wayward people regarding what they've lost again and how God is going to respond to them. This is a sad story. Like, if there's anything that we've learned about Israel and the minor prophets, it's just, it's sad face emoji, okay? It's not happy times. It's not good endings. It's like the same thing over and over and over again until they come back from exile. <gasps> Hopes are high, man. The temple's being rebuilt. The walls are reconstructed. Israel has even recommitted to God. They've recommitted. Great, a commitment, right? And they're starting to keep the Sabbath. They're starting to worship God. Things are looking good until, like clockwork, they start to wander again. Um, it was really hard to see it happen this time because there was probably at that moment, there was probably this sense in which like the, the direction we're headed as a nation right now is towards this like hopeful fulfillment of all that God's promised. I mean, God promised like, yeah, you're going to be judged, but I'm going to bring you back. And, and, you know, as you follow my ways, like as you do your part, man, it's going to be good again. I'm going to bless you. My presence is going to be uh, at the center of your, your existence as a people. And it's kind of like you start to see it track up. It's a, it reminds me a little bit of like... Um, the DVD screensaver, ding, right? And you're like waiting for it. There's Dwight Trude waiting for it to go into the corner. And it just never, it's like, oh, okay, no, right? And that's like what happens. It's the perpetual DVD logo thing, you know? But it never truly comes to pass. The same story over and over again, Israel's tendency, and this is what Malachi exists to point out, their tendency to lose, this is important, to lose what they've found in God. To lose, you ever lost what you found in God? I mean, this is a nation that there's times where they find remarkable things in God. They find grace they could never deserve. They find purpose that they could never discover on their own. They find a love that we were talking about that they can't even fathom. They find redemption that no one could ever dream up. They find this, and they find God's word at times even, to, to guide them as a people. But the story of Israel, consistently losing what they found in God. In fact, Malachi says this in chapter 3, verse 7. Here's kind of like, this summarizes what God has to say to Israel. I mean, this is how the Old Testament closes. Aren't you so glad there's a New Testament? I'm so glad we got, we got the old, but we also got the new. The new really comes in and saves the day. Because here's how the old ends. Here's where things are at. He says, yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. That's the part to focus on. 
That, that has been their perpetual tendency to go away from the things of God and to lose rather than keep what God has given them. But this morning, the reason why we would open up this book and observe this story is because, well, each of us, each of us can be characterized this way as well. This isn't just unique to Israel, is it? Um, rather, Israel serves as an illustration of each of our condition, the human condition and the human tendency. Each one of us have this to lose what we find in God. This is really, you could say, the moral of the human story. A great God of great gifts and goodness and a wayward people who are constantly losing what they've found. And it doesn't happen overnight usually. It usually happens where, well, it's a lot like my keys, which is one of the many things I have so many responsibilities in this world. It's just overwhelming. The little things you got to keep track of, you know, like your keys, it's the worst. Um, and the reason why it's so hard is not just because, like, I'm all over the place sometimes, but because I have children. And, I mean, we have just lavished our youngest daughter, Penny, with so many great Christmas blessings and toys. She has a little princess house. But it doesn't matter what we've given her. This is her most prized possession in the house. Like, they should just put Fisher Price on this and sell it. I'm telling you. This is her favorite thing to grab of mine. Um, and, and because of, and she, she loves to try to open every lock, every door. Uh, sometimes, like this morning, actually yesterday I was at Lee's house. And do you remember Lee finding the keys in the back of my truck bed yesterday? Yeah. So yesterday I was at Lee's house. He's like, hey, you have keys in your truck. I'm like, oh, cool. I needed those. You know, it's like my keys are just there. And that's what she'll do. She'll go. She'll throw them. She'll, she'll bury them. She'll put them in her little fake microwave. That's her favorite thing to do. If it could turn on, she would have already exploded my keys in the microwave. Um, and, and here's what usually happens. So for me, and this is the illustration here, is she, she usually is able to find them, and I lose them because of her, because I don't put them where they belong, right? So there's a, I have to have a dedicated place for my stuff if I don't ever want to lose it. Anybody like that? Like you need to have, the, they, it needs to go in the same place every time. Now, I'm not saying it always ends up there. Okay, that's the moral of the story. But there's a key, there, there's a, uh, there's this key ring thing we have, a key hook thing, that like, I don't know why we haven't replaced it. We moved into this house and the previous homeowners put it up. It's these little cats and like the hooks are their tails. <laughs> we should take, I mean, we could replace that probably. Um, but anyway, so like I, hang, I come, well, I don't even like cats. I actually don't prefer them. And so I, so I but I come home every day and I, I have to make sure I hang my keys on, uh, on the cattail. Like, there it goes. I got to put it there. Uh, otherwise, here's what happens. If I don't, what usually happens, and this is usually what it is with the Lord, the way that things get lost, especially spiritually, it's just like that. There's the place that it belongs, and then there's the place that it ends up. So instead of God being right there at the center, what we do is instead of putting him in the right spot, we put him just kind of like off center, right? Let me, God, just, I'm going to put other, I just got other things I got to do, Lord, you know, um, the, the next decade is all yours. I got you next. But for now, like, I just got some things, like some goals, Lord. You know I got goals, all right? And, and so what happens, God, just kind of go over here. And, and then eventually, it's amazing how quickly that, that middle spot just swells. How many things, how easy it is for things to just slide in there. I think of Paul's words to the church of Ephesus, don't give place to the devil. Don't give him a foothold. He'll just sneak in at every opportunity. And just slowly but surely, the Lord's pushed out from the center and to the point now where he's like peripheral. 
And you're reminded of him when you come to church. Or you're reminded of him when you see somebody post something or when maybe he knocks on your heart and is just whispering his kindness to you. But what happens, slowly but surely, like it did in the nation of Israel, is eventually what's pushed out of its rightful place gets lost. And we, like Israel, the moral of the story, we lose God amidst all the distractions of life. Anybody been there? Um, That's what the book of Malachi, unfortunately, is about. This human proclivity, tendency to regularly lose the things that we've found in God. Uh, There's a reason why Timothy is told by Paul in 2 Timothy 1.12. Look what he's told. He says, for this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. This is where Paul is encouraging Timothy to be loyal to the faith, and he's encouraging him to to trust God to keep what is our tendency to lose. In another verse, he actually charges Timothy not to lose what he's received in the Lord. And the reason why he would charge Timothy with that, the reason why God would say to a Christian, keep track of the Lord, is because of our tendency, again, to lose him. Now, what exactly about Israel did they lose? Like what, or rather, what about God did Israel lose and what do we also have a tendency to lose in our own lives? Well, that's what Malachi details. Let's look at a couple of these things. Uh, Malachi gives us these, uh, these, these different things, a couple of these different things that the nation lost that they had found in God. And, and here's what I think could kind of mirror our lives as well. The first thing that we see, write this down, is we see in the book of Malachi, we see that Israel lost faith, first and foremost, faith in God's love. It's the first thing that was lost. The first thing that went from central to off-center to peripheral to lost was God's love, faith in God's love. This is a beautiful scripture. You got to make sure you read this with me. Open your Bibles. Look at Malachi 1 verse 2. We'll start there in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Here's what God says. I have loved you, says the Lord. That's what God has to say to his people. I have loved you. And and the language there is, uh, it's a present tense, I'm loving and I have. The the language is interesting. It describes a present feeling uh, that has been made evident and been proven by past actions. I love you and I have loved you, and there's great evidence to the fact that I do love you. God says to Israel, what a great promise. God speaks over them, I have loved you. But notice this in verse 2, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Isn't that remarkable that 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 is Israel's response to God? Israel, the people that was perpetually unfaithful to God, so unfaithful um, that, that, that they would constantly thrown to the side for every other idol that showed up. It was kind of like, what's the new idol? I'm looking for a new idol. I mean, that was their heart. And this unfaithful people, God, time and time again, was faithful to them, committed to, committed to them. So much so in his love that at one point he sent them a prophet named Hosea. Remember that guy? And said, Hosea, I don't want you to just preach about my faithfulness to this unfaithful people. He says, Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. God? Is that the Lord? Are you sure? Like God says, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And as you go pursue her in your love, what you're going to find is she's going to be perpetually unfaithful to you. So Hosea marries Gomer, the prostitute. And Hosea describes the instance 
where, where Gomer is bound again by her sin. She is a slave, and she is now owned by another man, and Hosea has to, in shame, walk through the streets to go buy his wife back. You imagine all of Israel looking on going, Hosea, what are you doing? Why would you do that? And Hosea is able then to look at them and say, this is how God is towards you. This is how God sees you, and this is his love towards you. I mean, that's the, the lengths that God has gone to to display his faithful love for an unfaithful people. I have loved you, says the Lord, verse 2, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Now, it's interesting here, Israel is not just doubting God's love, they're disputing God's love. And this is kind of the tone that uh, Israel takes in the book of Malachi. This is one of about seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, or eight uh, other occurrences where Israel is responding to God with like, I don't know about that God. Like they're disputing God. And it starts here with them disputing his love. Okay, God, you say that you loved us. Well, in what way? It's almost like, well, where, which book of the Bible do you want me to point to, right? Isn't there a saying? It's like there's no such thing as stupid questions, right? And I like that because I, I be, tend to be the one that asks the question that I should know the answer to. But sometimes it's like, well, you should know the answer to that. <laughs> you know? It's like, I think it works good. It gives people grace when they ask something that they should know the answer to. But I don't think Israel has the freedom here to ask this question. We would all agree. This is, you could say, a stupid question. God, in what way have you loved us? Now, how do you get to this point where God has so proven his love and his faithfulness to you as a person? and yet you still don't trust in him? How do you get there? How could Israel get to this place where God, I mean, he's done everything because of his love, and they're still going, I don't know. I don't know. Um, usually, what I've seen in my life is my faith in God's love is often determined by my own track of his record. His track record, right? My own track of his record. Usually, the reason why, like Israel, we lose faith in God's love is because we lose track of God's record. We, we lose track of God's faithfulness to us. We take our eyes off of the things that he's done for us. We, we tend to focus more on how I'm feeling rather than God's proven faithfulness to us. And so how does God answer this question? In what way have you loved us? Well, God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom, which is the people of Esau, has said, We have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord, They may build, but I will throw down. You don't ever want to hear God tell you, I'm about to throw down. That's not a good thing to hear God say, right? They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So, so God says, Israel, I love you. They say, well, how have you loved us? He goes, look at Edom and trace back your history to the origin of your nation when I chose Jacob out of grace and love and elective mercy. I chose the unlikely son out of grace. And notice how things are going for Esau. It's not going so well. We read the whole book of Obadiah. Remember the book of Obadiah? Where Esau and Edom are, are prideful against God and he brings judgment on them. That's where it's going for them. But he goes, but look at you, Israel. 
Notice how I've chosen you, how I've loved you, how I've selected and elected you to be my people in my grace. God says, just in case there's any question about my love, go back to where you see me first choosing you. And even as you look at yourselves as an existence, right, Israel's existence is just the expression of God's love for a people that like, I mean, you could look at them at this point in history and be like, God loves Israel. But today, they're still here. Israel is still here today. Israel's still a nation. The nation of Israel is one of the greatest evidences to the existence of God, by the way, that there are people that were small in number that have survived insurmountable odds. They've gone through the worst persecution in universal history, the most enslavement, the most evil. Yet God says, I've loved you and I've proven it. I mean, you just see that. And for Israel not to see this, it's a ludicrous question. Now, it's not just Israel. I know we too struggle with believing God's love. God's proven it for Israel. The Bible tells us that God has proven his love not just for his people. But John 3.16 says that God has proven his love for all people, including you. John 3.16, it's this little hidden verse in, the, in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. You really got to check it out. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You have this giant spread of God's love to include the whole world. God so loves the world. First Timothy 2 says that God is not, he doesn't desire anyone to perish. He desires everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. God loves you. God loves your neighbor. God loves your enemy. He loves the world. He, he invites, notice this, he invites the whosoever. Well, I'm not one of those people. Well, are you a whosoever? Yeah, come on in. Come experience the love of God. That's what the cross demonstrates to us. God says, I've loved you. We say, well, wh when have you loved us? How have you loved me, God? Things right now aren't going so good. And Paul draws our attentions to Roman, Romans chapter 5. We all know this scripture where God demonstrated his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love for all people. He says, I'm going to make this abundantly visible and clear. I'm not going to simply send you a prophet to tell you I love you. I'm going to send my son. And he is going to, with his life, with his death, with his substitutionary death, taking your sin upon himself, with his victory over the grave, he is going to demonstrate how true my love is. And today, like Israel, we will also lose faith in God's love when we lose track of that record. We take our eyes off the cross. Some of us, our focus is too much on ourselves, man. We're so focused on our performance. We're so focused on our efforts. And can I tell you that your ability to keep God's rules is not the power of God unto salvation. It's the goodness of God displayed in the love of his son that quiets us. I love that, that, that Kyle was reading that. Quiets us before him because of his love. It's what Jesus did. You know, Jesus to his disciples, I love this. He says the same thing. So you want to see how, how beautifully Jesus kind of like fulfills the book of Malachi. In Malachi, God says to Israel, I have loved you. Look at Jesus in John 15. He says, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Here's the God of the book of Malachi in the person of Jesus declaring his love for us. Uh, there is a reason why the author Jude says this, keep yourself in the love of God. Yeah, I know God loves me. I grew up, I went to VBS, okay. okay. 
I went on a missions trip to uh, Ecuador, and I can say John 3.16 in Spanish, okay? Like, I know this stuff, and that, that's sometimes the problem. We're too close to it to actually be impacted by it. The real question is, are you defined by God's love? Have you wandered from, from God's love? And, and how, do, how do Jude's words ring true in your life to where you need to keep yourself in the love of God? Maybe you've wandered from the love of God. You just need to come home. Come back to that place of life. But we also see this with Israel. So first, I had you write this down. They lost faith in God's love. That was the first thing that they lost. They, they would find it over and over again. And they, they would lose it. They lost faith in it. That's the first thing they lost, faith in God's love. And Jude says, keep yourself in that love. The second thing they lost was passion for God's name. This is a really important one. This is the second thing that Malachi calls them out for. The fact that they've lost passion for the glory and the honor of the name of God. The glory and the honor of the name of God, which is, uh, first and foremost, why we were created, human beings. Human beings, you and I both, we were made by God on purpose for the purpose of giving glory and honor, not to ourselves, but to God. Um, it's just how humans work. You function best as someone who lives for the glory and honor of the name of God. That's how you function best. And scripture says this is why Israel was saved as a people. It's also why we've been saved. But Israel was saved as a people not to make the name of Israel great, but so that the name of God could be great. That's, that's God's greatest passion. It's an interesting verse here in Isaiah that describes it, which maybe is, this might be a kind of foreign concept to us. A lot of us, we have a very uh, anthropocentric understanding of, of theology. Anthropocentric is where man is ultimately at the center of it. But God is very, um, I don't want to say self-centered, but in his grace, he is God-centered. And he knows that everything goes wrong when God gets removed and man's glory is there in the middle. And so God actually, this is what salvation is, God has to save you from your own glory, from being your own God. To live now for the glory of his name, for the honor of his name. And that's what he does for Israel. Look at Isaiah where God lays this out pretty clearly. He says, for my namesake, I will defer my anger. You deserve my judgment. And and." Uh, but, but instead of my judgment, I'm going to show mercy to you. I'm going to be gracious to you as your God. Not because I looked at you and I thought, okay, I see. They're, they're actually straightening up. You know what? You deserve my patience. God goes, no, the reason why I've been gracious to you, the reason why I've saved you is for the, my own namesake. He leads us in paths of righteousness, our good shepherd, for his namesake, for his glory. And for my praise, I will restrain it from you, for the glory of his name. This is God's biggest passion. His biggest purpose. Behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Notice this, verse 11. For my own sake, so important, has to say it twice. For my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? That's the worst thing that could happen, is the name of God be profaned by his people. And I will not give my glory to another. So, so this is, again, this is what God said. This is his priority. This is his passion. And when God saves Israel, he rescues them for the sake of his name. He wants that to be their passion. In fact, a lot of the Psalms, they, they, they contain this language for the people of God. To give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. You know, Jesus, when he teaches his followers how to pray, 
He says, prioritize your prayers around this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, in my life, what a prayer. God, I've been saved for your glory. May the chief purpose of my life be the glory of your name. May, may your name be hallowed in my life. What a vision. God, use my life for the praise, not of my name, but of your name. And that's what Israel existed for. Malachi writes to them, and he says, hey, guys, you've lost a passion for this. Now, how, how, did, how did Malachi describe this? Well, when you look at the nation of Israel in the time, the way that, that we see their lost passion for God's name is it's displayed in these sort of half-hearted sacrifices that they're bringing to God. Um, so, so in the law, Israel was commanded to bring the best sacrifice. It's specifically in, the Deut in Deuteronomy chapter 15 that says, All the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to them to the Lord. Deuteronomy 15, 21, listen. And if there's any defect in it, if it is lame or blind... The worst, a blind sheep, you ever had it? The worst, right? If you have a blind sheep or if it has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Like, we live for the glory of God's name. We're not going to bring some lame, literally, like some lame sheep, you know? Like, we're not going to bring a lame sheep or a lame sheep, you know? We're not going to bring a blind sheep, a defect. This is God's glory we're talking about, right? I'm not going to bring some half-hearted sacrifice, but that's what the people were doing you got to read this, Malachi 2, or Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father. Look what God says to his people. And a servant his master. If I am then the father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name. Now, that's interesting. Created for the glory of his name. But he says, instead of honoring my name, you're actually dishonoring my name. Here's how. They say, well, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, he says, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Notice this question God asked in verse 8. Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Like, if you wouldn't bring that before man, that effort, that half-hearted worship, why would you bring that before God? He says, offer it to your governor. Is he going to like that? Is he going to accept that favorably? Now go down to verse 11. Notice what God, or the end of verse 10 says, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. God says, I'm not going to accept it. Verse 11, from the rising of the sun even to its going down. Here's what God says. Whether or not you're going to participate in this whole give glory and honor to the name of God, whether or not that's going to be on your radar and that's going to be your passion, I love that God says this, for my name shall be great among the nations. The way it says in, in, in Philippians 2 is one day at the name of Jesus, every single knee is going to bow. Like, it doesn't matter how big our names get, how much we work for our own glory. At the end of the day, it's only one name that's going to outlast them all. God says, my name will be great among the nations. My glory is what's going to endure. All the flesh of man is like grass that withers. It's the truth of God's glory that's going to endure. And so God is saying that to them. My glory is going to be great among the nations. Verse 12 says, but you profane it. So, so they're bringing, again, these half-hearted sacrifices. Verse 13 says they were bringing stolen sheep. How messed up is that? Like, not only are they bringing, like, lame sacrifices, blind sacrifices, 
It's like robbing a bank and tithing with it, you know? Like, <laughs> they're bringing stolen sheep, saying, okay, God, here's, here. and, and now, again, here's what this is displaying. This is displaying apathetic service to the Lord. Instead of passionate worship for the glory of God's name, the reason for which we were created, the reason for which we have been saved, they were bringing half-hearted expression of worship, half-hearted service. Now, right now you're wondering, okay, so like this first time here, like are we about to like kill some sheep? Like what's, like, I heard something back there. Was it the kids' ministry or, or the lambs? I'm a little nervous. Um, now, let me remind you, of a, of a principle of the Old Testament and of the law and of the covenant. Um, God gave Moses, God gave Israel his law to, to show, number one, God's moral absolutes, like how perfect God is, but as a result, to be a mirror of how imperfect we are. And the constant, um, the constant cry of Israel's heart, well, we should say the constant cry of God's heart was, I love you in my grace. And the constant urge in Israel's heart was to earn it. God, just give me some rules. Come on, we just want to follow your rules. God, I need rules. And um, you have the story. <laughs> you have our lives perpetually falling short of that. So you have this legal system that, that just showed how hard it was for humans to be right with God on their own. God even had to provide his own sacrifice. But all of this ultimately existed. We know this in, in the New Testament. The Bible tells us that the law, it's good, it's perfect, but it also reveals our sinful nature. For the knowledge of the law is the knowledge of sin. I know how broken I am and how I can never keep God's requirements. Ultimately, that it might be a tutor, it might lead me to a greater system. It might lead me, listen, to a greater lamb, to a greater sacrifice. Now, here's the truth. No matter how unblemished and passionate your and my worship is, um, none of us can produce the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins. None of us. Nobody can. There, there is no perfect sacrifice. Some of us are, are trying to attain that. We're trying to bring the best we can for God's approval and God's acceptance. And you need to just sit back for a second and remember that that has never been possible. And God knew that. So what did God do? God sent a lamb, right? Like Abraham, God provided a lamb. Well, that was a picture of a lamb that he would provide that John the Baptist would point out. You know, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, Jesus was coming toward John the Baptist, and John said, Behold, I love this, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of our best efforts, they're lame. They're lame sacrifices trying to atone for ourselves. But what about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? He takes away our sin personally. He takes away our sin powerfully in a way that we never could. And he takes away our sin permanently. Permanently. Do you, do you realize that? That through the cross, your sin has been permanently removed from you? Not just removed as long as you're still good. You're, you're forgiven as long as you act forgivable. No. Permanently removed through the Lamb of God. Now, that's what Jesus has done. So here's the question. What then is the sacrifice that we bring? What, what, what is the worship that we bring? Well, it's not a lamb. Thank God. Thank God. I'm not killing any lambs in here today. Hebrews 13 says it's a, it's a song of praise. Hebrews 13 says, let your conduct be without... Oh, this is not the right verse. This happens every week, all right? There's a great verse in the book of Hebrews about the sacrifice of praise of our lips. And so it's a song of praise. It's a song of worship. 
Uh, I'll show you a better one that I got right, Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So this is beautiful. Just like Israel, just like all of humanity, first, you were created for the glory of God's name. Sin is living for the glory of our own name. God sent his son Jesus, like Israel, to rescue us to exist for the glory of his name. We, as those who have been saved, we haven't been saved for our, our own glory, but it's solely Deo Gloria. It's for the glory of God alone. It's for his glory alone. And the way that we live for his glory as those that have been saved by him is, is we present ourselves to him. We say, God, here's how I'm going to worship you. Not just with what I do, but with who I am. We say, God, I'm not just going to give you this part of my life. I'm going to give my life to you. The very thing that you've purchased with your own blood. And so here's a question for us, I think, as well. Like, have, have we lost passion for the glory of his name? Do we, do we worship God with our whole hearts? Whether it's the song of praise here on Sunday morning, are we half-hearted worshipers? Or do we live passionate for the glory of God's name? So much so that I don't, it doesn't matter what song it is. It's, it matters who it's about, right? So I sing to him. And God, I give you my whole life for the glory of your name, not just parts of it. Thirdly, we see this, that they also lost sight of God's standard. They lost faith in God's love. They lost passion for God's name, the human tendency. Thirdly, it tells us that they lost sight of God's standard. It's Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, where look at what God says to these people that are losing the things that they found in him. Now they've lost his standard for life. You have wearied the Lord with your words. I just think that's an awesome scripture. That God is like exhausted from the things that the people are saying. It's important to remember that uh, um, it's not just our, pray, our prayers and praises that rise up to the ears of God. Uh, to God, there's only one. There's not, it's not just that that rises up to God, but our complaints rise up to God as well. We see that. God hears everything, right? He hears it all. He, he, hears the, he, and he, and he hears it in a way that's unique to where he knows the heart behind it. But as he, as he was listening to the nation of Israel, the things that he was hearing from, him, from them were, were, were wearying. That's what he says. I'm wearied by your words. I'm wearied by what, what truths or what, what, I should say, what views you're, you're entertaining in your mind. And they say, well, in what way? Here's their dispute again. In what way have we wearied him? It's like, just like Israel History 101. Like, did you not take that class in Hebrew school? Like, you could have learned it, right? Like, in what way have we wearied God? We've just been such a great people, right? And here's something specific that God says they're saying that's wrong and is exhausting him. He says, in that you say, everyone who does evil, notice this, is good in the sight of the Lord. Now, are they saying that with their words? It's as if he... Um, sees them saying it with their lives. The way that they're living is promoting this, the, this theological idea that God, and this is what it goes on to say, and he delights in them. That, that God delights in the sinner and the saint alike, right? He's just, it doesn't matter, good or evil, well, it's kind of subjective, and you know the gospels, like God doesn't really care anymore, you know, like, like it doesn't really matter what choices you make, it doesn't matter if you hurt people, it's all covered. It's all covered, right? Like, and that's literally what they're saying. They make this statement in their hearts, and they say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That's what they're thinking, that, there's, that God doesn't have some kind of a standard that he's measuring humans against, which he does. And the hardest thing about this standard is we don't get to determine what it is, right? 
The God of, of, of holiness himself is what determines what's right and what's wrong. The temptation from the very beginning is to be the ones that determine what's right or wrong. God says, don't eat of that tree. Through it is the, is the knowledge of good and evil. Through it is you being an autonomous moral agent. No, trust me. Trust what I say is good and evil. And from the very beginning, we've been slipping into this temptation. This temptation that thinks that I, that I can make whatever choices I want without any consequences. And um, we see Israel doing that in a really sad way. There, there's one area in particular that they were losing sight of God's standard for life as, as his people who live for the glory of his name. Um, and instead of giving him glory with their decisions and their life and their choices, they were profaning his name, uh, specifically in the realm of um, marriage. Uh, so we see them living in this sin and compromise in this way to which they are compromising God's standard for marriage. It's in chapter 2 where God, uh, notice what God says about how they're living in regards to God's standard for marriage. This is really interesting. I never, I had never read this about marriage before. I probably should have 11 years ago. But um, Verse 10 of chapter 2 says, Have we all not one father? Has not God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? That's marriage. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Here's God's indictment against them. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. I'm going to read that at the next wedding I officiate. I officiated a wedding, was a Friday, on Friday, and I wish I found this verse on Thursday. Because what a cool thing, from God's perspective, God says... When, God, when, when Malachi is describing marriage, it's a holy institution that God loves. This is important. Marriage was pre-fall. We know this, right? Garden of Eden. That marriage is a holy thing. It's a sacred thing. You know, there, there, there is obviously like a lot of distasteful, unskilled Christians today that are just barking at anyone who is morally broken. And it's a problem and it's the opposite of, it seems to be how Jesus tended to relate to sinners as a friend. But at the same time, at the same time, the reason why as Christians, uh, the, the underlying, we should say, conviction for why we are so passionate about marriage, being between a man and a woman for life, is because we believe it's sacred to God. We don't believe it doesn't, it just kind of, we, you look at scripture, this is our authority, we come under God's word. We, we don't come over God's word, we come under it, we tremble at God's word, and when you look into scripture, you see, you see this covenant of marriage, it is something holy to God. It's, it's not something that came after, this is like Garden of Eden holy, Garden of Eden sacred and beautiful. And, and, and when God looks at Israel, he says, you're profaning that covenant. Now, there was two ways that they were profaning the covenant, um, which I think could sum up the, all of the two ways that we can profane the covenant of marriage today as well. And when you read through it, you see they were doing two things. Number one, they were marrying the wrong person. That's a can of worms. And number two, they were divorcing the right person. The first thing they were doing was marrying the wrong person. And when I say the wrong person, person. I don't mean like, oh my gosh, I know he loves the Lord, and I'm not sure, is he the right one? Like, oh, recompatible? Like, what's going on? Like, I'm not talking about that, okay? I'm talking about, like, objectively wrong. 
He tells them that the way that they were profaning it is that they were marrying the priests, were marrying, he says, the daughters of foreign gods. These are unbelieving women. And, and, and this was leading them astray. It's marrying the wrong person. The scripture says, do not be unequally yoked together with a non-believer. It's marrying the wrong person. Um, and in verse 15, it's really interesting. God tells them why, like the reason why he wants them to marry the right person. And the reason is because your marriage relationship, who, like scripture doesn't say, hey, just marry whoever you want. It just doesn't say that. God's like, no, you, like, like be careful. Like think about it. <laughs> At least, you know, like, like really like pray and like make, get counsel. Like, who, is it the right person? And the reason why God cares so much about this is because what he tells them in verse 15 is that your marriage is not about you, actually. It's for God's glory. Um, it's to display Christ in the church. And, and also, he says, the reason why I want you to, I want believers to marry believers, he says, is because uh, godly couples, he says, produce godly offspring which brings about godly legacy like I, i've talked to some christians and they're like i'm afraid to have kids because of how evil this world is you ever talked something like you ever thought that you know uh, 2020 like sealed the deal like we done okay <laughs> like you know i'm not speaking for myself um but you know a lot of times a lot of times that that can be the view but god's like no 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 yeah this world is wicked be faithful in your marriage. Have a godly marriage. You know how you fix the darkness? You, you, you raise up children to know the Lord, which happens through a godly couple, and they go as lights into the darkness. Like, that's my mindset for my kids. Not, oh, my gosh, I hope they survive. It's like, change that. We're raising up missionaries, guys. We're raising up light bearers. we got to believe that God's spirit is upon them as much as he's upon us. Amen? Like, there, there's got to be a change there, and God wants them to know that. So they were marrying the wrong person. They were also divorcing the right person. That was the other thing. Now, who's the right person? Well, it's, it's your husband or wife. How do I know if, if they're the right person? Did you enter covenant with them? They're the right person. Who's the one? The one with whom you became one. That's the one. <laughs> and they were leaving their wives for, for, so it was this whole messed up situation. They were committing treachery. Uh, but this is, again, the, the pattern of Israel. They lost touch with God's standard. They lost passion for God's name. They lost faith in God's love. And I'll invite the band up. We'll close it out here uh, to wrap up our service this morning. But write this last one. Um, lastly, they lost touch with God's goodness. And this is where this book closes. This is where the story of Israel and Malachi comes to an end. And this may be like what's at the heart of what was wrong with them. They lost faith in God's love. They lost passion for his name. They lost sight of his standards, started doing their own thing. But in the end, you see them losing touch with the goodness of God. Um, towards the end of this book, they have this cry in their heart that God is hearing. And here's what they're saying. This is genuinely on their hearts. You have said, God says, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now, here's where they're at. We call the proud blessed. Those who aren't walking with God, they're now saying, you guys are blessed. For those, for those who do wickedness are raised up, they even tempt God and go free. So, so this is where their heart is at. They're looking on at the, the wicked prospering, and they're asking this question, what's the use in serving God? 
yeah, I know he's done all these things. I've been taught about it, but, but what's the use of it? I mean, that, that's such an interesting question. God, what profit is there in serving you? In other words, what, what do I get out of it? Now, you get a tremendous amount of undeserved blessings, by the way, in following Jesus. But that's not why we were led to follow Jesus in the first place. It's because of who God is. It's his goodness that was to sustain them and propel them. And that's what they had lost touch with. They lost sight of God's standard and they lost touch with God's goodness. Um, so, so that's where this book really wraps up. It wraps up with this, this feeling in their hearts of we've lost what we had found in God. But um, as I close us out, I, I want to point out usually what we start with. We try to start each week with what we call our major message, uh, the major message of the book. I want you to notice something uh, about the major message of this book and how it's not what Israel had the tendency to to, to lose, but it's instead the reliable nature of God's unchanging faithfulness. Kind of crammed into a context of different ideas, you have this profound scripture where in verse 6 of chapter 3, God says this, For I am the Lord, I do not change. He says, Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. This is amazing. Because the whole book of Malachi, and we could could really say like this is the summary of the minor prophets and the human story, but all that we've studied, what, what you see is we see the human tendency to change. Like we change. One day we, we love God and want to follow him. The next day we don't. I mean, this is, you could say this is the major message of our lives. But the major message of the book of Malachi is not in a people who need to stop changing, but it's in a God who doesn't. It's in a God who says, I do not change. I never change. What, what an incredible promise. This is what holds it all together, that we have a God who is unchangingly faithful, that we can rely upon. The way that this book ends is by pointing to God's faithfulness in sending a messenger, John the Baptist, who's going to come to prepare the way of the Savior, of Jesus. Jesus, who would go to the cross for us, who would rescue our lives. He says this about himself. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but I shall raise it up at the last day. And that's where our security is. Our security is the fact that though we have the tendency to lose the things of God, it's a good thing that your relationship with God doesn't ride on your ability to keep it. Your relationship with God relies on the fact that God doesn't change even when you do. That God, this God of immutability, this God of unchanging faithfulness, he says, even when you're faithless, I'm faithful. He says, even when you're losing the things that I've done in your life, here's the good news. At the end of the day, Jesus has never lost one of his own, and he has you. What what security to know that God doesn't change, that he has you in the palm of his hand, that he knows right where you are. And though you might have wandered and gone from the left and the right, you've kind of gone all around confused, he's always had you. He has those that belong to you. To him. That's what Malachi wants us to zero our hearts in on. And this Thursday, of course, we get a great opportunity to celebrate that, that all of these promises to Israel are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But as we close today, I just want us to end this time with a reflection on the love of God. And so we're going to have a worship song. I want to encourage you to stand with me as we close this out. 
just ask that you take a moment with me to open up your heart to the, the beautiful lyrics in this song that just say, one thing remains. Uh, there's one thing, like right now, maybe you feel like you've gotten nothing. You feel like you've lost everything. Maybe you feel like your relationship with God is kind of like that. It's just, where's it at? At the end of the day, I love this great promise. God doesn't change. One thing remains, who he is in his faithfulness to us. Let's take a moment to connect with him, allow these lyrics to cause you to worship him and receive the love that he has for you.
So God, we just thank you for that one truth that remains, God, amidst it all. Whatever's crumbled in our lives, God, whatever imperfection you know of, we thank you that our security today, God, is not in our ability to keep you, but it's in your faithful, reliable ability, God, to never lose us, to have us in the palm of your hand. So we go as those who are secure in that and knowing that you have us, God, even when we wander. May we also come back to you as you call us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.